0: from time to time as we've gone through this series that Isaiah is a well, fascinating book, but it is, it is different in some sense from what we are used to in, in, in terms of sort of Western chronological kind of thinking as we, as we read through something and expect to move. And, and even though we're, we're used to you know, sort of the TV series where they'll, they'll fade back in time and all of a sudden you're having to sort out, is this are we in the present? Are we in the past? Where are we? Isaiah does this a lot, and and so Hebrew, both poetry and prophecy, have a very circular nature to them where there are themes that are visited and then revisited and then come back around again. And so that's one of the reasons why in some of these sections we're sort of surveying. We're trying to, to hit key points from each chapter, but not necessarily walking through each and every verse, and we're going to do some of that this morning, but certainly this Section we're in this morning is the concluding part to a, a unit that really goes back to the beginning of, of chapter 40. If you recall, when we sort of laid out the structure of the book, it really breaks down at chapter at the end of chapter 39, and then 40 becomes this sort of looking forward to new things now that God is revealing to his people, particularly his ideal servant who is coming. Um, but 40 through 48, the section has had a lot to say about idolatry, a lot to say about Babylon, about coming captivity in Babylon, but in particular, it it sort of is triggered back in chapter 40, verses 18 through 20 by the question, to whom then will you liken God or what likeness compare with him? And that sort of frames 40 through 48 in this kind of courtroom language that we've used, the idea that God is saying, who are you going to compare me to? Are, are, you, are you saying that I am like idols? And that's what he asks then in verse 19. An idol? Something that a craftsman casts and a goldsmith overlays with gold and casts for its silver chains? He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot, the one who can't make the fancy metal idol. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. It, it's that question. To whom will you liken God? Who are you going to compare me to? Because the the Jewish people are surrounded by neighbors and they are doing just like we do. We we look at our neighbors and we sort of compare and contrast and see what we have and what they have. And the people of Judah are beginning to embrace this idolatry that surrounds them, this notion that these other gods have some sort of merit, some sort of benefit. And, and, And they will particularly... As as Isaiah is is writing this, and we're looking now late in his ministry, so maybe 690, 680 BC, the the next king who reigns, Manasseh, is going to lead the people of Judah headlong into idolatry. He will be among the worst of all of Judah's kings in terms of leading them into evil. And and so this this case that God is bringing is really critical for the people of Judah to say, who are you going to choose? Who am I to you? they seemed to sort of envision this supposed competition among the gods. That's sort of the the, the embracing of the the neighboring community outlook on gods. We have ours, you have yours. When we clash in battle, it's a battle of our gods. We see what the outcome is and whose god is better. And, And so there is this kind of perceived idea that Yahweh has to prove himself against the gods of other nations. And so Yahweh defeats the Assyrians, as we saw back earlier in Isaiah, when, when they lay siege to Jerusalem and, and, and they are defeated. But about a century from when Isaiah writes this, it will appear to the Jewish people as if Yahweh has been defeated. When, when the Babylonians come in and they capture Jerusalem, about 600 BC, that, that Judah really first tries to revolt against what is Babylonian pressure at that point, pay tribute back to Babylon. We're sort of a sort of protection money. We won't come in and invade you if you continue to pay taxes to us. We won't provide you anything for it, but you'll pay us. And so somewhere around 600 BC is is when the the, the king says, that's it. We're not going to do this anymore. 597, Babylonian army lays siege to Jerusalem. And this goes on until 586 BC until the point when Jerusalem is finally destroyed. And at that point, the people are taken captive. The temple is gone. And if you are a Jew at that point in time, this leads you essentially to two conclusions. One is that your God has been defeated, that this is a battle of gods. And and, and the evidence of that is not just the, the victory, but it's the destruction of the temple. The very dwelling place of God in their midst is now nothing. It has been leveled to the ground. And so the first conclusion that you're tempted to believe is Yahweh has been defeated. His priests, his people have been either killed or captured. And then the second conclusion is that the Babylonian captivity, that those who remain and are taken into Babylon, essentially means the end of the Jewish people. Remember again, if you're among the people of Judah, you've got history that you know from generations past. You understand how your ancestors were were delivered out of Egypt. They were brought out of exile. But you also can think back to your nearer sort of relatives, the people of Israel, the northern kingdom, the brothers and sisters of the people of Judah. And if you think back to what we've read earlier in Isaiah and some of that history, 722 BC, the Assyrians come in. They capture the capital of Israel, which is Samaria they take the people, they deport the people, they scatter them throughout other conquered empires, and and for all intents and purposes, the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, is done. There is no return. There is no glorious coming back from exile. The people are absorbed, and in fact, we get to the New Testament and we find (laughs) this almost despising of these mixed race people because they have now been mixed with all of the nations around them. And If you're in Judah and Babylon now comes in and their army takes you and takes you back to their country, you have in in at least the recent past the knowledge that there is no homecoming. This is it for us. Our God has been defeated and we as a people are done. Jerusalem has been smashed and any rational thinking Jew at that point assumes that that, that what they had believed before is now over. And the best case scenario is just be a good Babylonian. Just sort of embrace the culture, embrace the gods, embrace the laws, become part of life in Babylon and move on from there. There's no hope. There's no recovering from this. That's, that's the prevailing sentiment that's, that's going to, to govern the people. That's why Isaiah here is so important because this is about 80 years before that happens that Isaiah is saying, wait, wait, wait. That is not how this will go. You you will, the the generations that come, will experience captivity. You are going to be punished for your sin. That's because God is just and God has told you not to embrace their idolatry. And and so Yahweh will cause you to be punished by the Babylonians, but Yahweh will not be defeated. And, And that's why this chapter... That really has been the heart of the theme of our series, There's Only One Savior, why God repeatedly says, there is none like me. This is Isaiah's response to the attitude that somehow Yahweh can be beaten, that somehow Yahweh can become at best a secondary God, if not even existing anymore. And Isaiah is here to say, no one rivals your God no matter what happens to you, no matter what your circumstances are, do not base your view of God on your circumstances. Know that God is God alone. He is the one true God. And so this is all prophecy in these chapters to say God is strong. Not only will he ultimately change your circumstances, and deliver you so that you will go on and so that the promise to David of an ancestor who will sit on the throne of David forever is fulfilled. Not only is there more to come, but, but God is strong and he is good. And, and he, will, he will bring a leader even from another nation to come and rescue you who will then say, you can rebuild your temple. Now, on the surface to the Jews at that point in history, that is a pretty great ending to the story. If you you are taken into captivity and you spend decades in captivity and, and ultimately are set free from that, Persia comes, takes over Babylon, Cyrus and Persia, and they defeat the Babylonians. And Cyrus not only frees the people, but he says, you can go back to your land. Here's some resources. Here's the authority to go back and rebuild. Just that alone, if this is a movie plot, that's when the the orchestra starts the the, the fanfare. Here they are coming back, and they are rebuilding. They're free. The end, right? That's, That's just the great finale, Isaiah is also here to say, no, 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 no. That is is not the end. God didn't crush Babylon just to score a military victory and say, see, I'm stronger than them. There's, There's more to it. God is the God of history. God is sovereign over the geopolitics of the world. God rules and he makes that clear, but his end game is not merely the exodus of the people from Babylon. God is doing so much more. Just as his end game was not to bring people out of Egypt, God's God's aim, God's purpose is so much more because of far greater importance than the people of Judah's freedom is Yahweh's righteousness, his holiness, his glory. It is the magnifying of his name as the only God. And, And that's why... God is not done with man simply at the point of saying, let me fix your circumstances. Let me see if I can make your life a little bit better, which is what so much of the, the, the preaching, self-help, life coaching sort of today even, it's still the same sort of themes. Just, just fix things. Just make life better. And, and God's like, no, I'll, I'll have none of that. It, it's not about fixing your circumstances. It's about addressing this thing that separates us, which is your sin. I am a holy, righteous God who speaks in truth and I long to draw you near to me, but it is your sin and your shame that separates us and so you must be justified. And so this morning we're going to finish just the last part of chapter 45. I touched on a fair amount of it last week, but I want to go back again to just some of the end of chapter 45 and go through chapter 48 and just, I want to just as we walk through sort of four themes four things that the lord does that that far exceed even though babylon and the release from captivity is a thread all through this four things that are far greater than that four things that the lord does for his people then that he continues to do Today and so last week when we one of the things we, we looked at last week was just the Lord's self-identification. He identifies as the only Creator, as the only Sovereign over all of history, as the one who chooses a people for Himself. Those were the things we looked at last week, and and one of the verses we read was Isaiah forty-five eighteen. He declares Himself to be crea- Creator of heavens and earth, and, and so let me pick up in forty-five twenty. And and here's sort of a response to the question of, well, why? Why create? Isaiah 45, verse 20, he says, assemble yourselves. This is the calling them together. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nation. We'll come back to that point because that's critical now to understanding what he's about to say, who they are. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God beside me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God. And there is no other. This this passage turns on the question of who God is addressing in verse 20. Assemble and, and come here and, and listen, you survivors of the nations, you, you fugitives from the nations. Um, some have thought historically in context, these are people, not just the people of Judah, but others who had been captured by the Babylonians, who have now been set free by the Persians, that, that Cyrus in his conquering of Babylon has now set free. And it's sort of calling these exiles together. But, but again, I, I, I would argue that's, that's looking through a very narrow lens that's looking sort of at the, the, the geopolitics of the world at that day and saying, God is primarily concerned. The big thing here is I, I've set you free. I, I, I've released you from captivity, but, but there's so much more. God is doing something bigger. This is God speaking to the idol, worshiping, evil people of the world and saying, I have come to save. I've come to do far more than release you from captivity. Back in 45, verse 17, he says, Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. What God is commanding when he says, assemble, survivors, fugitives, God is saying, come and hear the message of salvation from sin. Come and hear of my deliverance of you. In 45, 16, he spoke of makers of idols and their shame. So this, this just isn't just about getting people out of Babylon. The bigger issue is sinners who need saving. And so in verse 19, he says, I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. This is the righteous, truthful God saying, I have come not just to rescue you from your circumstances. That, that's It's easy, if you will, for God. Not not, not that anything is hard for God, but if you're going to put this on a scale, I can fix your circumstances. But the bigger issue is you need to be saved. You need to turn to me and be saved, he says in verse 22. Listen, God often works in dramatic ways in people's lives. We we can tell stories and you can probably give testimonies of things that God did even before you knew Jesus Christ as Savior, of of, of how God heals diseases. Diseases, how he saves from disasters, how he releases from addictions, how he um, salvages marriages and families, how he does amazing things that, that are praiseworthy. But don't seek God just to fix your circumstances. That's what he's saying here is come to me and be saved. Turn to me and know what it is to be forgiven of your sins. Don't just come to God to fix your lousy circumstances or give you a spouse or a better job or make you happy. We'll we'll get to this passage later, but let me read Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, the wicked forsake his own way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that the Lord may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon This is the the message that Isaiah is moving us toward now when we get to chapter 49 next week and on into the message about the servant in 53 and 54 and 55. It is, come to me and be saved. I am a saving God. Repent of your sin and turn to me. Because God saves, we should turn to him. And we should trust in him. If you are, this morning, if, if, if this sounds completely foreign and, and you feel like you have no hope for eternity, you do not know how you would stand before a holy and righteous God accountable for your life, then I would appeal to you as Isaiah did 700 years before the coming of Christ, turn to Yahweh, turn to the Lord and be saved all the ends of the earth. Turn to him and acknowledge your sin and put your full trust in Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross, that he is the servant who comes to pay the price for sin. So the Lord saves. Next, so Isaiah 46, next chapter, verses 1 through 4, we'll read. Watch the contrast now between 1 and 2, the first two verses, and then 3 and 4. Bel bows down. These are gods over the Babylonians. Nebo stoops. Your idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age, I am he, and to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, I will carry and will save. The Lord saves, and second, the Lord carries. It's a fascinating contrast between the, the pair of verses one and two and the pair of verses three and four. One and two is referring to two of the chief gods over the Babylonians. Gods that when they had their festive New Year celebration, they, they trotted out the idols that represented Bel and Nebo and they paraded through the streets and they carried these gods. The, the point that, that's being made here is that these are idols. Humans carry them. They bear them around. They, they hold them up. Those idols don't don't elevate themselves as transcendent over the crowd. Somebody has to lift them up and carry them through the parade. And in fact, his point here is that ultimately, those useless idols of yours, when the Persians defeat you and you are carried away, you'll have to drag your idols along with you. They'll, they'll, They'll be like a burden that you'll throw in your ox cart. And there's your God lying in the back of the cart, being pulled by your oxen like a burden that you bear. That's what your God is. When you are ultimately defeated, you will see this. They, these gods cannot do anything for themselves. They cannot save. They, 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 they not only are useless to the people who bow down to them, but they, they can't even help themselves. And so his whole point here is, don't you see? You have to carry these things. They're like a burden that you bear. But then in verses three and four, I carry you. I am the one who carries you. I am the one from conception to old age. I gladly, I uphold you. I give you life and breath and sustain you and provide for you. In verse one, where it says these gods you carry are born in the ESV, carried B-O-R-N-E, the Hebrew has the idea of loading something onto someone's back. It's the same Hebrew word that's used in 46.3 when uh, Yahweh says, you have been loaded on my back since before you were born. I I took you on me, put you on my shoulders, and I have carried you. You, you. You may not see it. You may not acknowledge it. But trust me, you wouldn't be here if I wasn't carrying you. And I will carry you until your gray hairs. I am the one who sustains you. The idols that, that people flee to, and we talked about idolatry a few weeks ago, the, the cravings in people's hearts, the things that, that they, they seek for satisfaction, the relationships, the stuff, the possessions, the w- whatever it is that, that people will crave for to try to find comfort in, to try to, to, to find some sort of strength in. The, the picture that he gives here is that those are just like burdens that you lug around. They become sort of these consuming things that, that, that drive your work and your ambition and your relationships because I want this. Everything sort of revolves around my cravings and my idols. And the Lord is saying, don't you see? It's like you're lugging around this terrible burden that wears you down. You carried around a burden like that. You, you want something so badly that it just, it weighs you down. The desire is just like a weight on you because I want this so much. Points us forward to the words of Jesus, right? That are so familiar in Matthew eleven. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what rest. Come to me, take take my yoke upon you. I am gentle and lowly. My burden is light. Come to me and find rest for your souls. Come to me and, and see the truth that it is I who made you and sustains you. Why not? Why not just? Submit to me and know that I will carry you and stop lugging around this burden. He is a strong God and he will be your strength if you will trust in him. Isaiah 46 also, um, just separately, just a passage I want to touch on before we move on to the next point in in chapter 47 is Isaiah 46, eight through 11, because this is a passage that we so often look to when we think about the sovereignty of God over history. Isaiah 46, verse 8, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Strong statements in in, in our understanding of who God is about his sovereignty. I say what will happen and I I I declare it and I purpose it and I execute it because I am the sovereign God. But it's also helpful to see it in context too that we tend to take it out in our theology and say God is sovereign and here's Isaiah 46, 8 through 11 and that's good. But it's also good to see it in its context of I carry you. And if the sovereign God who says I am sovereign over history is the same God who says I carry you, I sustain you, I bear you, then we can know that what he says is true and right. If this is what he says, then in my worst of moments, in my worst of circumstances, I can go back to relying fully on the fact that God wants to carry my burden. He wants me to unload it. He wants me to stop trying to bear it because I can't. And he wants me to trust that he is the one I need to rest in. Stop being stubborn, right? All right, let's go on to chapter 47 and the next point. Chapter 47, verse 1, Isaiah now will shift to Babylon, what happens to Babylon after they are used by God to punish Judah. Isaiah 47, verse 1, come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no more be called tender and delicate take the millstones and grind flour put off your veil strip off your robe uncover your legs pass through the rivers your nakedness shall be uncovered and your disgrace shall be seen i will take vengeance and i will spare no one our redeemer the lord of hosts his name is the holy one of israel the lord saves the lord carries but we must not forget the lord humbles the proud and his his statement here is to to those who remain stubborn those who continue to say we do this. We we don't need you, Yahweh. We'll we'll carry this ourselves. We got it. The ones who refuse to give up their rebellion, who crave their idols, who carry their desires around. And and he now uses Babylon as the example of that. And the picture here is of a people who perceive themselves to be like a queen. We We are royal. We are strong. We are a mighty ruling power. We are elegant and beautiful and everyone looks to us and they are in awe. And Yahweh says, when I am done with you, I will strip you of all your trappings and you will be sitting in the dust in your shame. And the world will look upon this this, this nation that thought itself so mighty and they will see you in your disgrace. Uh, Isaiah 47 goes on to explain how God was using the Babylonians for a purpose. You are to be instruments in my hand. They were to punish God's people as God determined because of the people's sin. In verse six, though, he says this, I was angry with my people. I gave them into your hand. You showed them no mercy. In other words, I gave you a job. What you did with Judah was was not your own doing. It was not Bell and Nebo who did this. I gave you this job. And the job was to be the, the rod of discipline against my people and to bring about their punishment. But you know what? You exceeded the bounds of the job. You showed no mercy. And you terrorized my people. And you killed my people. And you did far more than, than what you were told to do as my instrument. And you will be humbled for your sin. Look at verse 10 of of chapter 47. You felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray. And you said in your heart, look at this, I am and there is no one besides me. But evil shall come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. Disaster shall fall upon you, for which you will not be able to atone. And ruin shall come upon you suddenly, of which you know nothing. See that Babylonian language in verse 10? It's repeated from verse 8, same thing. In your heart, you said, I am. I am and there is none beside me. That that should immediately spark a trigger, right, in our minds when we think I am is the self-identification of God. It is God's way of saying, I am self-existent. Nothing brought me into existence. I am transcendent. I am over all things. And here is man at the height of his arrogance saying, I am. I am and there is nothing like me. I am is the language of God. Exodus 3.14 to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent you. John 8.24, Jesus, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And then just to echo that even stronger in John 8.58, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And if you remember the scene in John 8, when he says that, what do they do? They pick up stones. Because they understand that Jesus in that moment is claiming to be God. He's using the language of God when he says, I am. And they are accusing him of blasphemy at that moment. And and so here is now Babylon at the height of its arrogance saying, I am, and there is none beside me. It is the height of man's arrogance to claim the place of God. And yet people do it all the time. Acting like I, I make my own rules. I define my own identity. I govern my own life. I will do as I please. I'm not going to be accountable to, to anyone. I'll, I'll, I'll look to life coaches and advisors who's, who, who what they say may or may not have anything to do with the word of God, and I will look to them for all of the wisdom that I need. Look to social media for whatever the, the latest hashtag is, and there you go. That'll, that'll give me wisdom. And they dismiss God. I can do this. I got it. Titus 116 describes those who reject Jesus Christ as they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. It's a warning to those who may say, Sure, I believe in God, and yet their lives show no resemblance to a holy God and to obedience to him. They have turned from him. And, and what God is saying here in Isaiah 47 is: I will humble those whose arrogance persists. If they will continue to say, I do this apart from you, then know that they will be humbled. Isaiah 47, 12 and 13, one last warning to the Babylonians. Stand fast in your enchantments. He's talking now about all the means by which they pursue wisdom and knowledge. Stand fast in your enchantments, your sorceries with which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps you may be able to succeed. Perhaps you may inspire terror. You are wearied with your many counsels. Let them stand forth and save you, those who divide the heavens, who gaze at the stars, who at the new moons make known what shall come upon you. He's saying to the Babylonians, I know you love magic and you look to the stars for wisdom. Go ahead. If this is what you want, just like in Romans 1, when he turns them over to their desires, he's saying, put all your hope in this and see what comes of it. See where it gets you in the end. See, it, 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 it may pick you up, a, a, a military defeat or two, but see how it ultimately works out for you and where you end up. See where it leads you. There is a there is a place for we who trust in Christ for urging on believers who have rejected Jesus and His gospel to carefully consider their own lives. Do you do you really have hope? Do you really have peace? It, it, is what you're doing right now? It, is it working? Is it working for the long haul? Is this where you, you see yourself just resting in this? Is, 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 is this what you've got? Are you, what are you counting on? What are you looking to? Where are you getting your wisdom? There's a place for us to urge that because the God who saves and carries vows to humble the arrogant. And it's a it's a call for us as believers in Jesus Christ to pray for those who are proud and arrogant, that God would turn their hearts, but it's also a strong reminder that we also need to speak this truth and say, God, God is God alone. There is none like him. And this God saves if you will turn to him and repent. These chapters really are applying the verdict of the idol's trial. That that, that all started with, Who will you compare me to? You're gonna compare me to idols launches this trial of God versus the idols, and these chapters are now applying the verdict. God proved the idols to be worthless and their makers to be evil, and he is now confronting Babylon and pronouncing its demise. This is what will happen to you. And so at the end of this, chapter 48 now, is the closing sort of declaration of his superiority over idols. And it's here in this final section that Yahweh now turns his attention back to the people of Judah, And what characterizes chapter 48, this last portion where the verdict is applied, the outcome is rendered, and how it matters for Babylon, how it matters for Judah, you can capture it in the first verse, the first word of chapter 48. Hear this, O house of Jacob. Hear. Hear this. Verse 12, listen to me, O Jacob. Verse 14, assemble all of you and listen. Verse 16, draw near and hear this. Each is a command. You should should note those in this text. Hear, listen, because starting with verse one, some form of the Hebrew word that's translated hear is repeated 10 times in 16 verses. That word literally means open your ear, to to open the ear. So it's it's hearing, but it's clear throughout the Old Testament and especially in the prophets that when God says hear and listen, it is listen for the purpose of obeying. It is not... If if you've been a parent or if you've been a child, you've experienced this where the parent says, don't let this go in one ear and out the other. Don't just have my words just sort of pass through and hear the words. I want you to listen to this and do it. And that's the language that he's using here again and again in chapter 48 is give attention to these words because you need to follow them. And so the Lord who is able to save, who is able to carry, who humbles the arrogant, he is the Lord who forth instructs. God speaks to all of humanity with this ultimate message, obey me. Here is my word. Here is who I am. Here is how I have made you. Now obey me. An Old Testament scholar puts it this way. Those who do not obey cannot be said to have heard in any meaningful sense. Implicit here is the central idea of the Old Testament. The living God has spoken, revealing himself in the medium of human speech. Such an astounding fact carries with it its own imperative. If it is true that God has spoken, then he must be listened to. He must be obeyed if your creator has, has instructed His commands need to be heard. After commanding the Jews to listen and obey in verse 1 of Isaiah 48, he goes on in verse 2 and and exposes the insincerity of their profession. Yes, you call yourself something, but it's clear you're not what you claim. He goes on to call them stiff-necked, obstinate. Look at verse 6. You have heard, now see all this. And will you not declare it? From this time forth, I announce to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. I'll suggest to you Isaiah 48, 6 almost summarizes everything we've seen up to this point in which God has said, okay, you know the former things? Remember what I told you about Assyria and you saw that? You saw how I provide, and here's what I'm telling you about Babylon, and you will see my work. And so he's, he's talked about the former things, and you are seeing these things, all of these prophecies that you've heard about the protection of Jerusalem from the Assyrians, and it's taken into captivity by the Babylonians. You, you have seen these things now, heard them and seen them. Now, he says, though, I am declaring to you new things. Now I am declaring to you things that you don't know. And that should kick us back to chapter 42, verse nine, when he says, look, the former have come to pass. You've seen the things I said before happen and new things I now declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. And who was introduced to us in chapter 42? The ideal servant, the one who is coming, the one that he will finally get back to in chapter 49, but he had to walk us through this, this compare and contrast to come to this verdict to say, I am God alone, and so I am the one who is now doing new things. I am now sending my servant. I, I the one who declared the things to, to, to come, have now shown you that they have come to pass, and so I, you know I'm in charge of history. You've seen me fulfill prophecies. So now when I tell you new things about this servant and how you need to respond to him, you best listen to my instruction. And yet the rest of chapter 48 will go on to condemn the people's persistent rebellion. Verse 9, for my name's sake, I defer my anger. God is saying I'm being patient for the sake of my praise. I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. We know that his patience runs its course to a point when we have the Babylonian captivity. But one of his points here in, in, in Isaiah 48 is even in that captivity, even there, that is refining. That is me showing you that I, I am still working. I am still instructing. I'm still holding out hope for you. They experienced his judgment in the captivity, but they were not destroyed. He, he poured out his wrath, but he also delivered them and offered hope. And so 48.10 says, behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. That's an interesting verse in the ESV. You may have. Um, I'm just noticing it's not in my text, but I've seen it in other ESV texts. There's there should be a footnote next to tried because that word tried. There's other older Hebrew manuscripts that say I have chosen you in the affliction uh, in the furnace of affliction. Whether it's tried or chosen, I would suggest to you that the implication is similar. He's talking about the captivity in Babylon and taking them out of that, but he's saying. I discipline those I love. This, this furnace of affliction that you've been in, the fact that you will, you will be standing when it's over and hearing my instruction tells you that I love you. It tells you that I, I, I don't leave you in your sin. God's intent in their punishment was to show them that he had not abandoned them. That's the very thing when they they are brought into Babylon. That's the very thing they're going to be tempted to say is Yahweh defeated and we've been left here. And God's saying, no, 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 no. This is to refine you. And, And the worst thing I could do is leave you in your sin and idolatry. The worst thing for me to have done is to leave the Babylonians out of the picture and leave you to wallow in your own sin. The Lord disciplines those he loves. And so he is... He's being kind to them. And so at this point, chapter 48, he goes on in verses 14 and 15, again recalls, I will raise up Cyrus is is what he's talking about in 14 and 15 to come and and release them from captivity. And then look down at verse 17. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord, your God. And and now watch what he says here, who teaches you to profit, to, to benefit, who leads you in the way you should go. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Because if you had, then peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like waves of the sea. Your offspring would have been like the sand and your descendants like its grain. Their name would never be cut off or destroyed from before me. This, this last section here in Isaiah 48, he's saying, I instruct you. My commandments are for your good. My teaching is to lead you. It is to profit or, or benefit you. I'm not trying to be hard on you when I'm instructing you. I'm trying to to show you what is good for you. I'm trying to impart wisdom. And if, if if you would simply listen and follow, you would experience righteousness and the blessing that comes with that. So God instructs. Verse 20, he instructs one last time to them. So go out from Babylon, flee from Chaldea. Declare this with a shout of joy, proclaim it, send it out to the end of the earth and say this, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob saying, Judah, when I deliver you, when you are released from Babylon, here's your commission, go out and proclaim the Lord did this, Yahweh has redeemed us, Yahweh has rescued us. And then you come to that last verse in verse 22. He, he's just said, I'm instructing you now to go and do this. And, and he uses, um, um, at 21, he, he rehearses the Egyptian exile. Your p- people have been through this before. They've seen me provide before in the wilderness. I took care of them before. You should go out and proclaim this. And then verse 22, there is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked, despite all that Yahweh has done his last words on this at the close of this section, despite all I have done, if you will not hear me, if you will not obey me, you will not have peace. It's that simple. You you will either hear my instruction and you will respond to it and you will declare it and you will rejoice in it or you will disobey and you will not have peace. Isaiah 48 was written to the people of Judah, but it is as much to us, a reminder that Yahweh is our Lord. He is our strength. His instruction to us is good. Those who are his, listen to him and obey. John 6, says, his are the very words of eternal life. Peter's great declaration. How would we leave you, Jesus? You speak the words of eternal life. Your words give us life. His commands, Psalm 19 says, are to be desired by his people more than gold, more than much fine gold. Receive my instruction. We, we could go on through Psalm 119 and, and see all of the things God's word says that it accomplishes if we will listen to his instruction It keeps our way steadfast. It guards us from shameful things. It causes us to walk in purity. It gives delight for our souls and on and on the Lord instructs. And so we must listen and obey. All of that now at the end of chapter 48 then leaves us saying, okay, if we're back in in Judah's day, we need help. If, If we're going to obey you, We've been given your law before, our ancestors were given your law, and we need help in order to obey. So we get to chapter 49, next week, the ideal servant comes to the forefront. And it is the servant that you and I know as the Lord Jesus Christ. And, And the reason that we can read Isaiah 48 and respond when God says, hear my commandments and obey them, is because if you are trusting in Jesus Christ, you are in Christ. You belong to Jesus. You are empowered by his spirit. And we are enabled now to respond in, in a, a wonderful way to the conviction of sin and to the leading of our Savior. So all of this has moved us along. Isaiah sometimes is so hard to follow in all of his moving around and, and working through poetry, but he's really leading us back now in 40, to get to 49 to say, here's what you need. You need a servant and this servant must come for you and he will give his life in your place. And this servant will save you and this servant will empower you to follow me and to be my children, amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we believe that you are the the one that Isaiah anticipated, the one that, that God spoke through, that Yahweh spoke through in order to say, this is the one. This is the one you must look to. This is the one you need. Here is your hope. And Lord Jesus, you are our hope. God, please help us when we are carrying around things, desires, cravings, weights that we think we can bear on our own that we think we're somehow strong enough to endure. Lord, help us to be a people who will run to Jesus and to cast our cares upon him because he cares for us. Lord, help us to be a people who long for the speaking of your word, that that your word, your instruction to us would be finer, more desirable than gold. Cause us to hunger for your instruction, for the help of your spirit. Father, if there's anyone listening this morning who is who feels utterly helpless and, and and sees the direction, the trajectory of life, and it's not moving toward ultimate hope and peace. It just seems to be moving in a chaotic way, and there just doesn't seem to be some end game of, of ultimate rest. Lord, I pray that today they would see that you sent your Son, Jesus, to come and die on the cross, to be a ransom for sinners, to take our place and to endure your just wrath against sin so that by fully trusting in him, we might be saved, our sin might be forgiven, and we might have hope and peace. Thank you for the countless testimonies in this room of how you have ordered circumstances in miraculous ways, how you have healed and rescued and delivered. But Lord, cause us to be a people who in any and every circumstance would hold fast to you and to your word and would never be moved from the firm belief that you alone are God and there is none beside you and you alone save. We pray this in the name of the Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.